Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Bite.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This one from a very special location, IAD, or Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C. I'll sit down with Jeremy Kinney from the National Air and Space Museum to talk aviation and history. With Richard Golanowski, the man who runs Dulles on maintaining this iconic airport. And then, a special guest who used to fly out of Dulles all the time. Mike Bannister, the legendary British Airways captain of the Concorde, on the history of the plane and the future of supersonic travel. First up, the man who has my dream job, Jeremy Kinney. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Jeremy Kinney, welcome back, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, in the district, of course, 
There's the National Air and Space Museum. And where we are right now, very close to where we are right now, is the Udvar Hazi campus of the National Air and Space Museum, which is, which is hangers full of stuff that it's unbelievable. You must be like the kid in the, in the candy store because you get to curate thousands of items. It's amazing. The Air and Space Museum has 78,000 objects. But and, who's counting? Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, right. And, and so and just at the Varhazi Center, we have almost 200 air and spacecraft there on display. And when I say hangers, you got everything there from, uh, it's, it's the Enola Gay? That's right, the world's first atomic bomber. They dropped the bomb on, right, on, on Hiroshima. Hiroshima. And you also have a, a Concorde. Yep, the Air France Concorde, also an SR-71 Blackbird. Which at one point set the speed record. That's right. You know, it's delivery flight. It broke a transcontinental speed record from the West Coast to Dulles Airport, just under an hour. Now, think about that, guys. Today, if you want to go from L.A. to Dulles, it's about five. This one did it in one hour. That's right. Five times as fast. Of course, it was top secret at the time. Well, it was a pretty public delivery flight. I mean, when I walk in the lobby here, there's a picture of that Blackbird flying over Dulles. <laughs> so. Wow. Uh, but if you really want to spend some time, and you can't do it in a day, I promise you, every time I go out there, I see something new that I didn't see before. And, and in Washington, D.C., in the district, of course, and the best thing about the museum, it's free. That's right. You do have a $15 parking, but it's free to get in the museum. Right. And in Washington, you don't need the parking. You just show up. That's right. But when you walk into the, in, into the National Air and Space Museum in D.C., what you're seeing you're seeing spacecrafts from the Mercury spacecraft. You're seeing uh, Lindbergh's plane, right? That's right, Spirit of St. Louis. And the thing, I have to tell you, Jeremy, I, I thought I knew everything when it came to planes. When I saw the Spirit of St. Louis and I looked at it up close and personal, I was blown away by one thing that you never think about until you actually physically see it. There was no front window. That's right. He, he, had no, he, he could not look ahead. He was looking at how did you how do you make a, a plane with no front window? Well, you know Lindbergh is all about the you know, calculating that risk, right? And so he wanted the fuel tank in front of him in case he crashed. He didn't want a fuel tank behind him because if he crashed, it would crush him, and then they would get all over and he would catch on fire. And so he made that risk that he only needed to see outside of the aircraft with his periscope for landing and takeoff, and then he just you know, navigated by instruments and he would look out the window when he needed to. Wow, I mean. Talk about pre-planning. That airplane is made for one thing, a transatlantic flight. Yeah, one time. <laughs> That's right. So here's my stupid question. Maybe you have the answer. Okay, we know he flew it from the U.S. to Bourget. Mm -hmm. How did he get back? Came back by ship. And so uh, you know, Lindbergh was an international celebrity after making that flight, and the spirit was packed up into big crates and brought back on an American warship. And then it was reassembled, and then, you know, then he flew it all over the U.S., and he flew it down to Latin South America, but he really it did, only made one transatlantic flight. I'm reminded about when, when Lindbergh was dying, and he didn't have many more days to live, he wanted to go see Hawaii. And, and they said, well, how are we going to fly him there? I mean, he couldn't really sit up on the plane. So United Airlines made a special provision, and they literally put him on a stretcher and on a 747 with the old circular staircase. Somehow they got that stretcher upstairs to the upper deck. The upper deck was completely reserved only for him, and they laid him out. They put, some, they put the seats down. They laid the stretcher on top of the seat so he could look out the window, and then they got special permission as they got to Hawaii where the pilot could drop down to like 800 feet 
and fly over every island one last time and bank to the right so he could look out. And today, uh, about a, oh God, about two years ago, I, I flew with a friend from, from Maui uh, all around the islands, and we flew right over where he was buried. Mm. His burial part, is, I mean, you, you couldn't have a better view. But I mean, I believe that. But unbelievable story about that plane itself, though, about about Spirit of St. Louis. Yeah, it's an iconic airplane in, in history, not just in aviation. Is it possible for you, as the curator here, to tell me the most exciting piece of equipment you have at the museum? Well, it depends on your perspective. Like, I'm always asked, you know, what's my favorite airplane and what I think is the most important. So I kind of go back and forth on whatever project I'm working on, uh, which, you know, includes the uh, Martin B-26 Marauder named Flakbait, which is a, a World War II bomber that of the Army Air twin Forces. Engine. Yes, twin-engine tactical bomber. Uh, it flew the most missions of World War II of any American aircraft. And every, I, I don't think people know that. Yeah, over 200 missions. Was, was the Martin, was, were they the bombing on Dresden too? Well, yeah, that was, this was a medium bomber, so it, it would have been involved in the Normandy invasion. It would have been bombing you know, just beyond the battlefield to help with the Allies pushing forward across uh, Europe. Right. Whereas something like a B-17, which we just recently you know, brought into the building, and, and components, that's a strategic bomber, so that would have been involved in the bombing addressed in that type right. of aircraft. And then, of course, there was Mitchell's raid over Tokyo. That's right. Yep. Do little flying B-25 Mitchells. Yep. The Mitchell, right? Yep. I mean, you need to see that video, the old footage, how they got B-25s on an aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. That alone is like, what were you thinking? How you could, how you could actually get that plane in the air. It's like putting a 747 on a go-kart track, you know, but they did it. And they also knew when they took off, they couldn't come back. Yeah, if you really want to understand how dynamic and exciting aviation was in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, look at Jimmy Doolittle. Here's a person who was an air racer, the first you know, PhD in aeronautical science, aeronautical engineering. He did all these great things, made the first blind flight, which, you know, which makes modern flight possible. And then he led this raid on Japan in which he showed the pilots how to fly a Mitchell off an aircraft carrier and to make that work. And just he had a, one not, chance at that. Yeah, and one chance, <laughs> just an amazing individual. And he took off first, so he had the shortest amount of distance on the carrier deck to take off to. Of course, you get the engines up to full speed. Mm-hmm. Right, it's a, yeah, max throttle, max throttle, and that that, that plane was shaking, mm-hmm. and then had to get off the airport. And yeah, and this is such a tense moment, you know, in, in the history of the United States, especially in World War II, and that mission had to succeed for all sorts of reasons. Yep, absolutely. And here we are at Dulles Airport. So much of, a, of aviation history happened here too. That's right. You know, just talk about you know, America's airport. You know, this, this, this story of this gigantic airport that once was outside Washington D.C., kind of out, you know, in the country. And how that Northern Virginia has just grown around it, but all the major airlines, that airline story, the international travel, all happens here. And in these moments of, you know, how we go out, you know, how Americans go out to the rest of the world. Dulles is one of those places that happens. In fact, I think I, I don't know if you've accumulated this data, but I think it's safe to argue that there have probably been more inaugural flights out of this airport internationally yeah. Yeah. than any other airport. Yeah, m- much more so for these airlines because it's you know it, it's a flagship airport right for the airlines to really show off what they can do and of course you know if you're going to fly transcon you fly from this airport it's not just you know reagan has got shorter flights because of the perimeter rule mm-hmm. and and they can't accommodate the wide bodies it's simply not big enough an airport but here you get everybody here that's right you know always uh you know, at the Verhazi Center, which is in the flight path of, you know, it's on the Dulles property itself. 
around five o'clock in the afternoon, you see those international flights just rolling in. Talking to Jeremy Kinney, the Associate Director for Research, and I love this title, Curatorial Affairs. I, sh- <laughs> I feel I should be bowing, you know, at the National Air and Space Museum, and I should say museums because you have the one in the district and you have Udvarhazi right out here near Dulles. That's right. How many, I mean, how many different planes did you say were, were at, at, at Udvarhazi? Uh, almost 200 air and spacecraft. There's about 180 aircraft, and we got about 20 or so you know, spacecraft, if you want to count, you know, guided missiles as well as the space shuttle discovery. How many planes do you get a year? That are either given to you or that you acquire. Yeah, we just calculated that, <laughs> and we get an average about three, three to four aircraft over a year. And especially since the Overhazi Center opened, we've averaged about three aircraft a year since opening over the past 20 years. Well, well that facility, you actually have the space to get them. That's right. And, and yeah, that's what the Udvarhazi Center was for, is that we had the downtown mall museum, but we had this tremendous collection. And so the Udvarhazi Center with the Boeing Aviation Hangar, the McDonald's Space Hangar, allows us to display these large objects so people can see it in a hangar format too, which is a traditional museum format, but allows us to display 10% of our collection, which is a lot more than other museums. So the other 90% is in storage? Storage, loan, uh, you know, uh, in various states of being transported somewhere. So, Do you have a Ford Trimotor? Yes, we do, in the America by Air Hall in the National Mall Building. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. My grandfather uh, was Donald Douglas's assistant and mm-hmm. built that, that, that company into the jet age. He retired wow. right after they designed the DC-10, and then he went on to become the commissioner of LAX. So I grew up in an aviation family. <laughs> and right before my mother passed away, she said, I've got something to give you. And it was, a, it was a size of an airline ticket, but folded out like an accordion with cardboard in the front, cardboard in the back, but nicely bound. And what it was, was from a company called Transcontinental Air Transport, TAT, the predecessor of TWA. And it was given to my grandfather as the first passenger on the first transcontinental flight. That's amazing. And on the front of it was just a map that they followed from the East Coast to the West Coast. It was the railroad tracks. That's the that's how they followed it, right? And on the back was a certificate saying he was the passenger, but and it was signed by the pilot. You ready? Charles Lindbergh. That's right. And there was the there was the tail number of the plane, which was a Ford trimotor. Okay. I went out to Oshkosh a couple of years ago for the a, the EAA show, the mm-hmm. most amazing air aviation yeah, show you'll ever yeah. see. It's the busiest airport in the world for about five days. That's right. And I mean, we're talking thousands of takeoffs and landings. And when I got there, they said, oh, listen, we'd like to offer you a ride on a special plane today. I said, what's the plane? They said, well, we brought it out of the museum in Ohio. It still flies, and we got the guys to fly it. It's a Ford Trimotor. It was the same plane. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) So 85 years after my grandfather took that flight, I was on the same plane. That blew me away. Do they know that? Or is that uh, a pleasant surprise? It was a pleasant surprise once I got back and looked at the pictures. Yeah. That's awesome. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> how great. did that happen? Yep. And you walk on the plane, the sides of the plane are wood. It's all wood wainscoting and, and mm-hmm. chandelier glasses. Right. It's like it's like a Pullman car. It's like a pull. It was a train that flew. Yep. Unbelievable. So you got the Ford Trimotor. That's right. Wow. And back at the facility in the district, I think you have, an, you have a cutaway of what, a DC, an Eastern Airlines DC-6? That's right. You can walk in, the visitors can walk inside of it. So it's the, the front nose section has been cut off and you can walk in it to get an idea of what it was like to be in one of those aircraft. And the other thing that you see up close and personal, which unless you see it, you can't appreciate it. The Mercury spacecraft, right, mm-hmm. was so small. That's right. That you would need two industrial spatulas to get anybody in that thing. 
right? That's right. We have Freedom 7, which is, you know, Alan Shepard's, you know, May 1961, first American in space, you know, capsule. And and people always wondered the size of that. So that's, you know, the astronauts called themselves Spam in a Can, and there's a reason why. The Mercury <laughs> 7 did, so. Well, I'm, rem- I'm reminded on John Glenn's flight, mm-hmm. he, was just, he was the first orbital flight, right? Because Shepard and Grissom just went up and came down. That's right. John Glenn actually went around three times. Yep. And on his second orbit, uh, Mercury Control, uh, they left the mic on, and they said to him, how's it going, John? And this is what he said. It gives me great comfort knowing, as I circle above the Earth, that every single component part of this spacecraft was built by the lowest bidder. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's the story. That was his sense of humor. <laughs> yep. But you need to go see these spacecrafts to realize, first of all, what the technology was then, right? Uh, way before digital, it was all analog, but how small it was. It, it really seeing the artifacts, that's the role of the Smithsonian there in Space Museum, is you need to see these objects and really... You, you can bring your own experience, your own perspective, but it's just you, you, you can stand there in awe, like this is, this is the real thing. And then when you come out here to Dulles, you should walk the terminals to get all the airlines that fly here and then go to Udvarhazi to see the history of all the planes that were here because every international airline at one point was coming from, from Dulles. Yeah, and Udvarhazi is very interesting because it gets just over a million visitors a year, which is success. It's successful in its own right as a museum because people, and you see a lot of people with their luggage ch- ch- checking it through security because they're, they've got a layover and they're going to go to that museum to see the, the see the artifacts. If you've got time on a layover, absolutely do it. You will not be disappointed. It's amazing. And of course, get to the Air and Space Museum in Washington in the district. You still have the IMAX theater. That's right. Well, it'll be opening next year, but yep, it's there. It's coming it back. Will be there. I mean, the very first IMAX film I ever saw was To Fly. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, that's when you really appreciated it. Way before Top Gun. Way before Top Gun. My thanks to Jeremy. From a design and operational perspective, Dulles is an iconic airport. Every international airline wants to fly to our nation's capital. And along with that comes some great history and great challenges as well. Richard Golanowski runs the show. Richard Golanowski, how are you, sir? Thank you, Peter. I'm well, thank you. You know, I look at the design of this airport and the message that it gave when it was built, right? This curving terminal. Um, you know, the, 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 the design itself was there was a certain amount of glamour. There was a certain amount of, of, um, of importance. Uh, and that's still there today. What about that do you work to preserve? Because it does send a message that you know, it's the nation's capital, and this is a, it's a big deal. Absolutely, Peter. So as you know, it was designed by your CERNIN uh, back in the 60s, yeah. and we have done everything we could to preserve the image and the function of Dulles Airport. It was the first airport designed for jet aviation back in the 60s, and we're very proud of that. And d- way before JFK. Absolutely. And in fact, JFK was here on the opening day, November 17th, 1962. And as a matter of fact, the day after, two days after, was actually the first flight. So JFK was here for the inauguration, for the opening. He lo- we locked the doors, he left. Two days later, we had our first flight up to Newark. Which airline? Uh, Eastern. 
Now, Eastern, of course, in my book stands for every airplane starts today except right now. That's but that's another story. <laughs> but that was that's who pioneered, right? That's right. That's correct. And that was a short flight. It was, very short. Pioneering of the shuttle, when you think about it. That's right. Uh, I remember the old shuttle flights where they used to roll out an Electra. If the, if the 727 was full, they'd pull, they'd pull out a supplemental plane, which is an old Electra they had parked. Right. But when you were talking, when we opened up, when you opened up this airport, it was the age of the DC, DC-8s Correct. and the age of the 707s, right? So your transatlantic service was 707s. Correct. And, and, you know, we had a lot of interest at the time, but when we opened up originally, there wasn't a lot of activity. And it was a very slow, gradual increase in activity over the years. Because the primary airport was national. Absolutely. You were the first airport, I believe, for the Concorde. Yes, we were. Right. And that was that was a great time. Uh, we enjoyed it. Our neighbors to the north and south did not necessarily enjoy <laughs> it. But it was very exciting for the airport. Exactly. So in your years here, I mean, somebody wants to start service to the United States, they come to Dulles. Absolutely. And we get them all the time. In fact, just this past year, we had four airlines, international carriers that wanted to start service here at Dulles. But every aircraft type has come here, right? Yes. So you had the VC-10. You had for those people who are dating themselves like I am right now. Uh, you had the 707, the DC-8, uh, the, the, the DC-10s, the MD-11s, the 747s, of course, and then the A380s. Yeah, and we're very proud of having the A380s here. In fact, some of the airlines are trying to bring them back. Um, so we are doing everything we can to accommodate any aircraft that an airline wants to bring onto this airport. Of course, the one thing that you had then, which I'm amazed that you still have now, it's a, it's a throwback. I don't know any, any other airport that has it, of course, are those people movers. Correct. The mobile lounge fleet. I'm very proud of those, too. But they go back. They're, they're getting old. 1960. And we rebuilt them a couple times. And we're How do you find parts? Well, we have to fabricate a lot of the parts ourselves. We have a, a pool of fabricators in the region, actually across country. And we send old parts, and they refabricate to the new standards. I mean, the technology that went into that and the engineering that went into those machines at the time was revolutionary. It was. I mean, you, you have a, 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 a vehicle that can raise itself two stories, right? Yes. And still maintain stability. Yes. And take a, how many passengers? 80 to 100 people. 80 to 100 people. And, and then and move. Yes. Right? And go between terminals. In the age of underground walkways and people movers. I'm not talking about your people movers, but you know the, the walking people movers that you see at airports. Right. Was there any ever an attempt to get rid of them? Absolutely there was. And in order to do that, we had to build a complete train system around the airport. That became very cost prohibitive in the early 2000s. And we realized that the mobile lounge fleet was very efficient uh, to operate and to move people. So we kept them. And you know what? It's an interesting ride because you see people racing to get them. Yes, absolutely. They forget uh, they got to get on a people mover. That's right. And it's funny because some people either love them or they hate them. I'm one of the lovers. I, I think they're great pieces of equipment, and uh, they're very efficient, and they're very durable. You should actually have drivers transforming into storytellers. They should tell stories, little short stories on the way to the other terminal. Yes. Just uh, a thought. We've had a few that do enjoy doing that. Of course, one of the legendary airports in the United States, Dulles, named for which one? The Secretary of State or CIA? Secretary of State. Okay. John Foster Dulles. That's correct. All right. You've been at this airport for quite some time. You've been at, in, in Washington for quite some time. Yeah. You started at National. I did. I, yeah, I still call it National, <laughs> otherwise known as Reagan. That's right. Uh, what's your biggest challenge? So right now, labor. It's hard to get people that are interested in coming into the aviation business. 
And part of that is because people don't know what it takes to run an airport. You know, we have people, we have all the trades here, we have all the professions here, and people are just concerned about getting to the airport, getting to the ticket counter, and getting to the plane. Right. Well, I've always said, and this applies to just about everything you can think about, if you don't understand the process, you'll never value the product. Absolutely. And we've had people that we've hired, and I said, how did you find out about this? I said, I had no idea what you do at this airport. I just happened to talk to somebody in the grocery store, and they said, you ought to apply to Dulles Airport. We have a lot of exciting jobs. What's the most exciting job here, other than yours, of course? You know, I'd have to say uh, our ramp control tower. It's a, it's a phenomenal operation. They control the movement of the aircraft on the ground. Once the FAA turns it over to us, they guide the planes in and out of the gates. And they, they got to do a dance. Absolutely. And, and they're constantly juggling all the planes that are coming in. We have a big afternoon bank. Uh, all the internationals are coming in at that time as well as United, and, and it can get very hectic up there in the ramp tower. Now, of course, we're getting into weather. We're getting into winter. Uh, what advances have you done in terms of snow removal? So we, we invested in a lot of uh, heavy-duty equipment, oh, probably about 10 years ago, uh, some very high-tech equipment to help us clean the runways. We strive to keep all four runways open. Uh, but obviously it depends on the weather that we're experiencing at any given time. But we have a crew of about 250 people that work on snow removal around the clock once it starts snowing. Now here's an idea that I saw happen in France, and I've asked everybody this question. I'm going to ask you too because I can't understand why we haven't done it in this country. How many times have you been on a plane, or have I been on a plane in the winter, and they've got a de-ice, yes. right? So you sit there while the guy comes in the cherry picker, and they spray the, the chemical, which you can, always, you, can, you can smell it inside the plane too. And then they do a good job. Then you push back from the gate, and you're in a line of 30 other planes. And then you got to go back and de-ice again, yep. right? Why won't you do the car wash? You know, what I'm talking about is put your de-icing facility at the end of each runway. So it's the last thing the plane goes through before it, goes, before it takes off. Yeah, so there, there are a couple of reasons. Number one, it takes a lot of space to do that. Yeah. And even though we have 12,000 acres here, we don't have a lot of space at the end of the runways necessarily, so it's hard to do that. Plus, there's also uh, the, the sequencing of the aircraft from the airlines. Everybody wants to be at the front of the line. So we allow them to do their own de-icing on their own pads, and then at that point we can usher them into the, into the sequence for takeoffs. What they've done overseas at some airports, by having that facility there, or it doesn't have to be at the end of the runway, it's on the way to the runway, sure. uh, all those toxic fluids, they can reclaim them. Yes. Because they have a way that com- they can do that. Not easy to do if every airline's doing their de-icing at the, at the gate. You're absolutely right, but we do have a system of trucks, vacuum trucks, that suck up all the de-icing fluid, as well as a drain system that we can control to collect all that fluid. So we're very proud of the amount of de-icing fluid that we collect during a storm. And, you know, you see some airports in America that have an unbelievable record of operating in snow that they never close, like Salt Lake. I still don't know how they figured that out. And then you have other airports. If it's if the word snow shows up, they close the airport. Right. Right. Like DFW. DFW does not understand weather. Let's close the ramp. Okay, why? I don't know. Let's just close the ramp. Right? <laughs> but you guys stay open. We do. And, and like I said, we're very proud of, of our open percentage, you know, our open time. Um, and we have, like I said, we have a crew, a large crew that's very dedicated to keeping this airport open. And we actually compete with National Airport to make sure that we don't close when they might. Uh, it's, it's a friendly competition between the two airports. See, in New York, you know, you've got four airports. Yeah, five if you add Stewart. But, I mean, you have Newark, you have LaGuardia, you have Kennedy, you have Islip, and then there's Stewart, right? Right. And Newark always closes first, I, right? Followed by LaGuardia, followed by Kennedy. 
So the secret airport for me, if I need to get out of town, is I go to Islip. Mm-hmm. They don't close. They just, I don't know why. It's just the way the weather is. You know, it's, it's an underutilized airport. Some would argue that you're an underutilized airport because you, you still can take a lot of new planes coming in. We can. Airlines. Absolutely. We can take not just new carriers, but getting back to snow, we take a lot of diversions from the Northeast. So it's very common for the New, the new York airports to send diversions down to us during snow events. Well, that should be your new nickname. Right? That's right. We're the, we're the diverse capital of... No, different, different approach of diversity. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but going forward, though, you can take a lot of new airplanes, or new airlines coming in. Absolutely. We have a lot of capacity here on the airport. Uh, we, are, we are tight during peak times, which every, every airport is, but we have a lot of capacity during the course of the day. So we are always inviting between, carriers. Uh, between 10 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you'll take as many airlines as you can take. Absolutely. It's that 2 to 6 period. Yeah. That, that we work very hard to get as many as we can, uh, but sometimes it's a challenge. Yeah, whenever I fly out of Dulles, I'm flying out after 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, the best time. It is. It is. My thanks to Richard. He was the youngest person ever to fly the British Airways Concorde across the Atlantic. And 20 years ago, when the supersonic jet was retired, he was also at the controls of the final flight. Now, two decades later, Mike Bannister reflects on that era and what the future might hold. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Mike, it's great to talk to you again. Oh, it's great to talk to you, Peter. You know, when I had, I had the opportunity to fly the Concorde three times, you and I talked a lot about it back then. It's also hard to believe that it's been 20 years since you flew the last Concorde flight before it was retired from service. 20 years ago, my goodness. I mean, so often people say that time flies. I guess with uh, Concorde having flown at twice the speed of sound, time flies really quickly. It just doesn't seem like 20 years. It seems like maybe 20 weeks or perhaps 20 months, but never 20 years. Uh, The memories are so strong. Um, and, And, of course, they're all very joyous memories, and they come back... Uh, so often, and I'm very lucky in that I still get the opportunity to fly the aeroplane on a regular basis. How is that happening, you might ask? Well, at Brooklyn's... I'm asking, yes. Yeah, at Brooklyn's Museum in Weybridge in the UK, we have the only Concorde simulator that uh, has survived. There were two, one in Britain, one in France, and the one in Britain was moved up to the Museum of Brooklyn's after the retirement of the aeroplane. And our very clever engineers and volunteers there got the simulator flying again 
and the simulator now flies better than it did when it was with British Airways because computers and uh, visuals have come on so much. And it is actually the 22nd Concorde flight deck. 20 were built, and then the two simulators are real Concorde flight decks. So when I go fly that, it is just like flying the real thing. And let's talk about flying the real thing because when you take a look at the Concorde today and we look back at it, it was really a 1958 technology airplane. It was a military jet that happened to fly passengers. I mean, when you think about it, you, you didn't fly the Concorde because it was comfortable the way we fly jets today with lie flat beds and luxurious first class accommodations. You, you had maybe, what, 99 passengers? And the, the reason why you flew Concorde, other than for bragging rights, you know this, Mike, was for speed. Well, yes, it, I mean, it, it was comfortable for its time, bearing in mind, as you say, it was developed in the 50s and 60s. It first flew in 1969 and came into service in 1976. And its contemporaries during the time it was designed were the 707 and the VC-10. Compared to those, it was comfortable. Such a huge amount of legroom, 37-inch seat pitch, and it was a very comfortable aeroplane to fly on. Of course, you're only in it for three hours and 20 minutes, um, as opposed to eight hours, maybe, for a 747. And you, the pressurization in the cabin was only equivalent to 5,000 feet, as opposed to 8,000 feet in the 747. So you were up a 5,000-foot hill for just three hours, 20 minutes, as opposed to up an 8,000-foot mountain for eight hours. And that really made a difference to the way that you felt. But, of course, as you... And you know what? We... I'm saying we've come full circle because right now, if you fly the, the Boeing Dreamliner, they're, they're considering such innovations as it's pressurized to 5,000 feet. You were ahead of the game. Well, I wonder where they got the idea from. <laughs> Indeed. As you say, the airplane sold speed, but of course it also sold reliability and punctuality. They were the key things that our regular customers uh, were looking for. And our regular customers... 80% of our customers were business people, and to them, speed literally was time. And, of course, you had, you had the heavyweights, you had politicians, world leaders. Did, I, I believe the Queen flew it, didn't she? Yeah, all the senior members of the royal family flew on her, um, as did many politicians. Of course, the celebrities did fly on her, but only 20% of our customers were celebrities or the, the seriously rich or 5% of them were people having a trip of a lifetime. 80% were regular business people. Of course, senior business people, chief execs, chief operating officers, chief financial officers of world-famous and renowned companies. And a lot of those, about 80% of those, were repeat customers who flew with Concorde, with British Airways, five times a year or more. Some, many more than that indeed. And, of course, the airfare was, I believe, on average about 10% above a first-class fare, which was already quite expensive. Yeah, it was pitched at that as part of the trade-off that had to be made between the, the British, the French, and particularly the, the U.S. for its introduction into service. Um, the U.S. airlines were concerned that Concorde would cream off the premium market, and so a deal was struck that we would charge initially $500 more than a first-class fare, and it turned out, of course, for the business traveler, that doesn't matter. Because if you can do in two days what would otherwise take four, you're saving significantly more than $500 in your overall trip costs. So for the regular business traveler, actually, Concord was a very cost and time efficient way to travel.
Exactly. And by the way, a one-way ticket averaged back then 8,000 pounds. Yep. Just a one-way ticket. Yeah, but if you compare that these Amazing. days to business class across the Atlantic, it's not far short of that now. Of course, 20 years has gone on. But, I mean, I have always thought that it was very good value for money if you had the money because it enabled you to save that most precious of commodity in most people's lives and definitely in the business world, time. Indeed. And then, of course, I have to bring up a story that I worked on that you were very familiar with. In fact, you guided me through that story, Mike. It was a terrible tragedy on July 25th, 2000, when the Air France Concorde crashed shortly after takeoff from uh, Charles de Gaulle, killing all on board. And that spelled the beginning of the end of the Concorde in service. Uh, the planes were grounded at that moment until other fixes were made. It did come back briefly, and then... In 2003, uh, you know this better than anyone because you flew the last flight. That was the last flight commercially of the Concorde. Yeah, it's a little more complex than that, as I'm sure you know, Peter. Yes, there was that awful accident in France. And if you had asked me before that how I would react to something like that, I think I would have probably said it ain't going to happen. The airplane's so reliable. And if it did happen, it would be awful for aviation and for the supersonic project well my reaction wasn't that at all it was about the people uh, as you say the 113 people that died and my initial reaction was to ring my counterpart in air france to see if there was anything that i could do and as indeed as you said the airplane was grounded for a year but we did get her back into service but the retirement decision within british airways did not really revolve around the accident Sure, it affected Air France's position on the airplane, but from British Airways' perspective, we had got the airplane flying again, we'd got our regular customer base back again, uh, we were making significant profits. What hit us most, most hard was the commercial side of things. When the manufacturers, Airbus, told us that uh, our contribution towards the maintenance cost of the airplane was going to go up from... 60 million pounds a year to 100 million pounds a year at that time about 160 million dollars a year before an airplane moved an inch and that was just unsustainable so for british airways it was a commercial decision uh, one that we very regrettably took i as you might imagine vehemently argued against it in the executive board but my argument didn't carry the day uh, and so we wanted to make sure that the retirement was a celebration and not a wake. And uh, that was how I spent most of that last year flying Concorde, encouraging people to look back on the 27 years of successful supersonic service and to look forward to the not too distant future when there'll be supersonic passenger travel once more. And that, of course, brings me up to the point of the not too distant future. We're now 20 years later and nothing, at least in terms of supersonic planes, have replaced the Concorde. Absolutely not, which just shows how advanced it was, what a great design it was, how forward-thinking the very clever people that did design the airplane and brought her into service were. Um, but there are and have been a number of supersonic projects since then. And the one that seems to be, certainly in my mind, most likely to succeed is the U.S. Boom Overture, which, when you take a look at it, is very similar to Concorde. And, and of course, that's probably because for a complex, a very complex uh, problem like how to fly uh, 100 passengers across the Atlantic at twice the speed of sound, there probably is only one perfect answer. 
And so Boom Overture, although it does have some differences to Concord, um, is very much a similar sort of size and shape. It's got four engines. It's got a very similar sort of shape wing. But of course, it has modern day technology and modern day aspirations, especially in terms of the environment, exactly. aviation fuel and a longer range. So yep. I'm optimistic that the Boom Overture will enter service in the not too distant future. We're talking to Mike Bannister, legendary British Airways Concorde pilot, the author of Concorde, the thrilling account of, of, of history's most amazing, amazing airliner from inside the cockpit. I'd like to share a little story about me and Mike that happened on the last flight out of JFK back in 2003. Mike, you were the pilot. Uh, I was working then for the Today Show at NBC. We were going to go live to get the rollout. And I don't know if you remember this story the way I remember it, but I'm going to share it with you. Obviously, we were fiercely competitive with the, with CBS and with NBC on, and with and with the ABC on Good Morning America. All the camera crews were lined up to go live. We were going to go live, and you and I put together a little side deal. You gave me your cell phone number, and you were sitting in the cockpit. And the deal was because everybody you were getting the courtesy of the airport. Essentially, they were saying, Mike, you can take the plane off whenever you're ready. And so you were waiting for my signal. And you know what my signal was? When ABC went to a commercial, <laughs> when I knew they went to a commercial, I said, go. <laughs> and, and you took the plane off. And the only guys who got the shot was NBC. <laughs> yeah, I remember that very well. There was another aspect to it because we had a very small window to take off because we needed to travel across the Atlantic and join up with our two sister Concords for the final approach into Heathrow, where three aircraft came in one after the other uh, at two, four, and six minutes past four. So it was a very narrow window, but you managed to get right in the middle of that window uh, and give us the signal to go. So it all worked out perfectly, certainly from my perspective, and that the airplane performed absolutely wonderfully and got us across the Atlantic at just the right time. And from your perspective, to make sure you uh, stole a march on your uh, competitors. So that was a really good <laughs> aspect of the whole day. Well, Mike, until this very moment, ABC had no idea how we got the shot. Now they know. <laughs> well, I promise so I won't tell anyone if you don't. No, it's, all, it's, it's out of the bag right now. But let me ask you this. In all seriousness, you know, I miss the Concorde. I miss the idea of being able to fly that fast, that high. For those people who never took the plane, when you were up at 60,000 feet and you put your hand on the window, it was hot. People forget the plane was designed to stretch, what, about two and a half feet during the flight uh, because of the intense friction and altitude. And, uh, and there was always that Mach meter at the front of the cabin which told you exactly how fast you were flying. Even the food was better, you'd have to admit, right? Absolutely. If you saw, if this was a video call, you'd see from the shape of me how much better the food was. Um, we we <laughs> did go for the best of everything, and we had some very significant world famous chefs producing the cuisine. One time it was the Rue brothers, other times it was other very famous chefs. But it was the whole experience from the moment you arrived at the airport to the moment you left the airport. Uh, accelerated check-in, accelerated uh, deplaning, uh, the very best service in the air, the very best cabin crews in the air. Um, and we wanted to make sure that 
when people got off, and even though they had very high expectations of what Concord would offer, we wanted to make sure that we exceeded those. Under promise and over deliver was the mantra. Uh, and I think 27 years of successful service proved that we did that. And the fact that many, many people flew regularly on Concord also did that. The lead Concord customer, a, a friend of mine called Fred Finn, he flew on the airplane 718 times. Now, that says surely that somebody's got it right somewhere. No, it says somebody has some very deep pockets. <laughs> or, or somebody's got businesses that have deep pockets, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you know, when I covered the terrible story of the crash of the Air France flight in, in, uh, in Paris, originally everybody thought the plane had just hit a piece of metal, it had flipped up into the tire, the tire then disintegrated, and, uh, and then the gas tanks caught fire. Uh, and as you know, initially, a French court ruled that Continental Airlines had dropped that piece of metal, and they, and they found that Continental Airlines was guilty of manslaughter and the deaths of all those people. We went over, and you were very helpful to us in giving me the information I needed to investigate that story, and we were able to prove something else about why that plane got into so much trouble so quickly. And in fact, because of your help and the investigation that we did, we actually were able to overturn that conviction because there were so many things that went wrong on that particular plane that day that it was impossible to recover, which is the, bi which is the biggest tragedy because there were so many things that were actually part of the demise of that particular aircraft. It's the same story with any accident, Peter. I mean, all accidents are a chain of events. Nothing is one simple singular cause. I mean, for instance, I hope you don't, but if you were to fall over in the shower tomorrow morning, there's, there are three things that have happened, probably. Um, the water's running, you drop the soap, and you don't look where you put your foot. And that's a very simple, straightforward accident. But there are three links in that chain. And if you take away any one of those links, so if the water's not running, or you don't drop the soap, or you do look where you put your foot, that accident doesn't happen. And all accidents are like that. And aviation accidents in particular are like that but in trumps they have so many more links in the chain and what had happened in the court case was that the french judiciary had focused on one link and basically said that is the cause for the accident where the aviation perspective is no it is one link in a chain and if you take away any of the other some of the other links you don't have the accident it is not solely to blame and of course we failed to prove that the first time round. but as you said on appeal, we succeeded in convincing the court that there were many more aspects to that terrible accident, some mechanical, some human factors, some design, and some just sheer bad luck. Mike Bannister, always a thrill to talk to you. The name of the book again, The Concord, the thrilling account of history's most extraordinary airliner from inside the cockpit. Mike, happy anniversary in terms of our memories, and I hope to talk to you soon. Peter, it's been a great pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you perhaps on a supersonic airliner in the not-too-distant future. That would be great. My thanks to Mike, to Richard Golanowski, and to Jeremy Kinney from the Smithsonian. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and you know how much there is these days, you know what to do. Just log on 
to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.